Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's take a look at what is happening down in the United States today. Uh, well, given what happened yesterday, what a day it was. So that was the first ever event that was held by the Democratic presidential nominee, Joe Biden, with his running mate, Kamala Harris. Now, they had the big introduction, the press conference, of course, not with a huge crowd or anything like that. But they did do a virtual fundraiser when that event, when that press conference was over. And in one day yesterday, that campaign raised $26 million. That is an eye-popping number. And apparently 150,000 of the people who donated were first-time donors. So on the Democratic side, they're pretty happy with how things have gone the last couple of days and all the good press that this has generated. But keep in mind, though, that is very typical of a presidential year. Any time that one of the main candidates picks the running mate and there's like this flood of press as people get to know that person, there's always like a corresponding little bump, right, with all of that attention. But we wanted to talk about the reaction to the choice of Kamala Harris and what the new team, the, the kind of interest the new team is generating. So joining us now is our Global News Washington correspondent, Jennifer Johnson. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning, Simi. What kind of reaction is the Biden-Harris team getting? Well, uh, from Democrats, pretty popular. Joe Biden pointed out that um, after he announced his pick of Kamala Harris, he raised more money in that 24 hours than his, his campaign has raised so far. So I think it's a very popular decision among the Democrats. Of course, the Republicans, GOP, Trump campaign already calling her a radical leftist. Um, you know, she's waffling on Medicare for all, wanted to legalize marijuana, that um, she's part of the radical left, the Bernie Sanders left. Um, so not surprising. The president has called her nasty, a risky choice for Joe Biden. So the attacks are already coming in from the Republicans and Donald Trump, but it appears to be a pretty popular choice among the Democratic Party. It's so interesting, though, isn't it? Because uh, in the past, we know that Donald Trump himself has donated to Kamala Harris's campaign in years <laughs> past. And as well, it seems like they had months to figure out how they were going to frame her, given that she was the front runner. But they don't they seem to be throwing a lot of things at the wall here. Well, you know, it's interesting to say that you say that because I think they were targeting more Susan Rice. I mean, we kept hearing about Susan Rice's investments and Susan Rice and her failure in the Benghazi attack. And so I, I think they were they, they kind of decided that they, you know, they had pinned Elizabeth Warren if, if she were the one and that they didn't have a whole lot on Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris, excuse me, but, you know, other than the go-to, the radical left, the Bernie Sanders left, I mean, I think that's what is going to be said over and over and over. You know, this is what's going to happen to your country. Now, of course, the Harris-Biden, the Biden-Harris team is going to turn around and say, we're in the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. 
and, you know, look who's in the White House. And that's what they were saying yesterday. You know, look what look where we are. We have a 10.2 unemployment rate, 16 million Americans out of work, businesses failing, 5 million people positive from COVID-19, over 166,000 dead Americans from this uh, from this virus that they say the President Trump ignored and mishandled the entire uh, response to the pandemic. So it certainly is going to be an interesting fight, but I do think that the Biden-Harris campaign made it very clear they're going to talk about the economy and they're going to talk about the president's handling of the pandemic as their you know, two chief, right. th- chief things to hammer on. So when is the Democratic National Convention or the, the virtual version of this? <laughs> well, that's, <laughs> that starts... Um, Monday. And so it, 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 you know, it's such an odd time here in the United States. Everything's virtual and it's not going to be your typical huge convention and people, you know, banners and, um, you know, speeches on the stage and all that. It's just going to be a very different convention actually for both parties. And so that starts Monday and it goes all week. Um, and, you know, I, I think the Democrat, I, you know, when you look at the polls, people are really obviously concerned and rightly so about COVID-19 and the economy. And I think that's what this campaign is going to be about. OK, so uh, they're going like to hammer they, that like theme over said, and over and over. Yeah, over and over and over. I, I believe, you know, America had its worst day since May yesterday in terms of COVID-19 deaths. We had over 1500 people die. But you know, just as disturbing or maybe more disturbing, over a thousand people a day have died from COVID-19 in the past 17 days. And again, the president is saying we need to get college sports, you know, even yesterday, we need to get college sports back up. We need to, you know, get schools opening. We're going to cut federal funding for school districts that don't open. And, you know, people are scared. And, and they, you know, the, the Democrats believe that he has he just doesn't take this pandemic seriously mm-hmm. enough from day one that he ignored it. And uh, and the economy has crumbled because of it. All right. More to come. Jennifer, thank you. <laughs> thank you. That's Jennifer Johnson, our Global News Washington correspondent on day one of the at least Democratic campaign kicking off with the new Biden-Harris team. This is Mornings with Simi. So we know that reopening schools is risky, and there is a lot of concern from people around that, especially when we see the numbers going up again. Only time will tell, though, whether it's going to lead to more outbreaks of COVID-19 or whether we can keep it under control. Researchers at Western University, though, have been looking into this, and they say the negative impact of not reopening schools, though, might be worse. So we wanted to talk more about that. So joining us now is Dr. Michael Silverman, Chief of Infectious Diseases for St. Joseph's Healthcare at the London Health Sciences Centre in London, Ontario. Uh, Good morning, Dr. Silverman. Thanks for having me. So tell me, what is it that you have been taking a look at uh, during the pandemic? So we've been looking at the long-term, the short-term and long-term effects on children of uh, being away from school. And there's been a lot of studies of this over the years, particularly uh, looking at the small uh, small children, preschool and early elementary. Um, and and th- these studies have looked at uh, times when there were teacher strikes. They've been done both in, in Canada and in Europe and in the United States. And really, they, the, the evidence was a, a profound impact on children that's not just short-term, but long-term. And so what is, what is it about the isolation or the not being in school that causes the problem? 
Well, there's several things. The isolation and their social impacts in terms of their developing social skills. There's cognitive impacts. It seems to be a critical time of life to be to have adequate stimulation. Um, there's long-term medical impacts, which is probably related to both of those in terms of uh, depression, uh, and diabetes, high blood pressure, and it's it's related that are more likely to develop in adulthood. And you'd say, well, how can this happen? Mm-hmm. But because the children who've missed a significant time in school generally don't catch up, and that's that's one of the ser- most serious problems, that they don't catch up, and it leads to long-term lower, uh, lower functioning on standardized tests, cognitive skills, higher rates of teen pregnancy, illicit drug use, lower likelihood of going into university, lower employment rates, and they earn less money when they finally do finish. And so the impact is really profound and long-term, and uh, I think it hasn't been discussed enough in our present discussions of going to school or not going to school. But do we know if it makes a difference as to how long the kids are not in school for? Like, is there a time limit? Like, they can do a week, they can do two weeks, but when does it become a problem? Well, of course, these weren't, like, structured experiments. They were natural experiments where teachers went on strike or there were other reasons why schools were closed. But as short a period as eight weeks, when they check kids uh, 10 years later, mm-hmm. those who were in schools that had that had, had teacher strikes for eight weeks, 10 years later, they performed less well than kids who were not in, in different districts where their teachers had not gone on strike. So they, there can be really pro- profound effects. And our, of course, the, our kids have already been out a lot longer than eight weeks. That's so fascinating, though, because you're not talking about a few kids where this is a problem. You're talking about, like, entire districts. Exactly. We're talking about a generation that's being kept home. I mean, the, 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 the United Nations uh, Children's Fund and, and, and other groups have called this a, 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 a public health emergency. UNICEF has said that basically that this, a health care crisis is becoming a child rights crisis because children are extremely unlikely to, to suffer serious harm from COVID. It can happen, but it's extremely rare. The predominant reason children are being kept home and being exposed to these effects is to prevent them infecting adults. Right. So in, if we're going to say that, then we really have to have profound evidence that children do infect adults. Um, if we're going to harm children, which are a vulnerable group, and we're going to say, okay, we're going to put children at a long-term disadvantage by keeping them home, but that we have to do that to, to, to help others. Well, then we really need strong evidence, and particularly for the young children for whom um, distant learning is least effective, the evidence that they infect adults is the weakest. So what, at what age, though, do we lose that? So we say that we don't necessarily know whether or not children, uh, you know, can infect people. But at some point, they're becoming young adults, right? Whether exactly. it's high school. So when, when do we draw that line? So there's been limited study of that to this point. What we do know, the few studies that have looked at it have often taken a, a, an age cutoff of 10. But, of, of course, it's not rational biologically that there's like on your 10th birthday, right. all of a sudden you physiologically change. But 
you know, for the younger children, the pre, the, the preschool and early elementary, the evidence is that they are very unlikely to transmit to adults. Now, the older the child is, the more, of course, their physiology is like adults, the more that they're taller and they can look an adult in the face. And so when they talk, they're more likely to spread it. And um, uh, but they're also more likely to be able to learn by distant learning, whereas the younger ones really can't. So was the key here then, Dr. Silverman, if the concern is about the adults who are in the school system, is it about protecting them from potentially, you know, being infected by the kids? Well, I think that we have to rephrase this, that the focus has to be more on the children than it has been to this point. The the focus has always been, what if the children bring it home? What if the children infect the teachers? What if the children do this? And that's all important, but I don't think there's been enough focus on what are we doing to the children? And how can we make this best for, how can we make this happen for the kids and not harm others? So if we're going to do that, we could take specific actions. So small class sizes help. If we can get past the discussion of just should we open or shouldn't we open, then let's say how can we open and do it safely. So small class size helps. So then should we have staggered hours for recess? Mm-hmm. We should have put in portables so that we can have smaller uh, smaller classes um, and, 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 uh, and, and multiple classes. Put in hoarding and areas, you know, improve the ventilation, like act on doing these things. We have people say, well, we don't have enough teachers, but at least in Ontario, there's a large number of teacher, people who've graduated who couldn't find jobs in teaching, who are now in other industries. We could call them back. Um, and, and, and start doing teaching. There's been a focus on, well, what about the vulnerable teachers? Some parents will choose to keep their kids home, either because they have vulnerable other adults at home. So those teachers who feel vulnerable could be teaching, doing remote teaching for them. But we have to try to make school available for the vast majority of kids for whom uh, it really is a better situation than remote learning. It also sounds like a couple questions. One, sounds like this is going to just going to cost money, right? Governments have to spend some right. money to make this happen. But also, too, do we know any ways to mitigate the effects of what you're talking about? That we know kids are going to suffer because they were out of school. What can we do once they're back in school to help them make up for that? Well, you, you raised two important points. First of all, it's going to cost money. But, of course, it costs massive amounts of money to keep them home because then all these parents who don't have child care are not going to be working or mm-hmm. going to have reduced economic output. So, uh, and again, I'm not advocating kids go to school to save money, although I think it will, but that's not. I'm advocating they go to school for their own health and for their own long-term development. And then uh, the, the other issue in terms of how can we make it safer and how can we protect adults? Yes, we will have to, we will have to do things to mitigate that. So we will have to, you know, teachers often will have to be wearing masks and older kids probably can wear masks. Um, and and the, the very young ones, but the, uh, it's harder to get them to do that. But on the other hand, the very young ones are the least likely to spread it. Um, we can be looking at how we keep them in small cohorts so that when spread occurs, we don't have to close the whole school, um, but we can have smaller cohorts. We will have to have contact uh, 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 follow-up, and we will have to have uh, more aggressive testing. But these are things we can do and we need to do rather than say, well, because we haven't done it, it's an insurmountable obstacle. Right. When they're back in class, 
Are there things that we can focus on to help them make up for that time lost? Well, that would be best asked to an educator. But uh, as a physician, that, that's not, you know, how to educate kids for time lost. Uh, that's outside my scope. But clearly, it's going to be a major priority and something we really have to focus on. All right, Dr. Silverman, thank you so much for this. Thank you very much. That is Dr. Michael Silverman, Chief of Infectious Diseases for St. Joseph's Healthcare and the London Health Sciences Centre in London, Ontario, talking about the negative impacts of isolation on kids and how that actually outweighs the risks of return to school, according to research. That was fascinating, actually. Uh, And I think it also drives a lot of what Dr. Bonnie Henry has been talking about. We've heard her in press conferences saying, you know what, we know it's bad for kids. And at this point, the mental health impacts and the fact that they're falling behind uh, is worse for them at home than for us trying to get them back into school. What did you think about what Dr. Silverman had to say? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. So we've been hearing for the last little while now that the majority of these new cases that we're getting of COVID-19 here in BC, it's young people. They make up the largest number of those new cases. And when we say young, we mean below the ages of 29, essentially, really between 18 and 29. So we wanted to explore that idea of why young people don't seem to be getting the message or did they get it? And are they discarding it? Like, what is actually going on there? And how do we get through to them in terms of, you know, trying to make sure that they do pay attention? So our guest is Steve Jordans, who's a psychology professor at the University of Toronto Scarborough. And he's joining us to talk more about this problem. Steve, thank you for being here. No problem. Great to be with you. Well, we would deeply want to dive into the psychology of this. So and I'm sure you've been doing a lot of that during this pandemic. Yeah, well, there's a there's a lot of psychology relevance to various things for sure, and yeah, you know this this is one of the the interesting things, the different ways different sort of age bands react to this, which probably you know in reality has less to do with their age per se, but more to do with uh, where they kind of are in in their life uh, and and what's important to them. Um, what do you mean? I'll, I'll just. Yeah, so thank you. There, there's there's something called Maslow's hierarchy that's very interesting, and it kind of talks about what is sort of on our mind, what is the primary motivator for us, and it's called a hierarchy because the suggestion is you have to kind of get lower rungs in place to kind of climb up this hierarchy, and, and just to give you a sense, the lowest rung is like your basic biological needs, and so the sense is if you don't have enough food or water, um, that is what you're worried about, and that is what your mind is focused on. If you have enough of that, then you have so-called security needs. You want to make sure you're safe and secure and your family is. If you feel like that's met, now this is where a lot of the younger people are at. It's called their their, their social needs. And basically, at, at a certain point of their life, you mentioned 15 to 29, mm-hmm. people are building out their social network. They're, they're creating that group of friends and, and maybe life partners, etc., that they will rely on for much of their life. And they kind of continue to do that usually until they become a family of their own and then their attention shifts to their family and then often to the so-called esteem needs, the, the, the desire to be you know, valued and respected in what you do for your living, etc. And so many of us older people are there. We're at the esteem needs. And many of us have forgotten, I think, what it was like. So we have our social networks built out. We're relying on them, but we're mm-hmm. not out there looking to build it, to, to meet new people, etc. And we may have forgotten what it was like to be that 15-year-old and, right. and how important that is. 
and what it would have been like to us to take about a six-month break from our friends. Um, it's, it's just a really big ask at that time of their life. Boy, you just explained it so well to me. Uh, that makes perfect sense, the way you've outlined it there. But I guess the question is, when it is a health concern like we have yeah. now, is there a way to explain to them that this is just temporary, you will eventually be able to get back to this? Yeah, that's, that's the trick. We're asking them to do something called delayed gratification. We're telling them, you'll get that back, or, or something like that at least. But we have to wait till the, the numbers are down. Um, and, and I think, you know, what we've seen in various pockets in Canada is predictable slips, I think. Um, you know, in Toronto, we had the Trinity Bellwood Parks early on when it was full right. of young people that were. Uh, but what happens often in these cases, and I, and I hope it'll be the case in BC too, is there is a public reaction, um, basically a reminder to these young people that it's, it's not time yet, um, that what you're doing um, is seen by many others as dangerous, and, and you're not gambling with other people's, or sorry, you're not gambling with your own money. That's, that's the kind of important thing. You know, it's not about your health. It's about the potential you have of bringing this virus back to somebody that it could right. really uh, hurt. Uh, and so I think every now and then uh, it's it's important if like what you're seeing in BC now a raise in the in the spike of cases of young people to kind of do exactly what we're doing right now to to you know be out there talking about it and say hey 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 you know we understand and I think that's important it's not like you guys are being a bunch of jerks it's like hey we understand this this is a very important thing in your lives right now you've been holding back for a long time. Um, and, and you have this feeling like everything's okay now, but it really isn't yet. Right. Um, and so, you know, often, in, at least in some pockets, what we've seen is a little bit of the spike, but then it goes away for a while. It's not like it's sustained bad behavior. Uh, so I think we have to call it out, and I think we have to rely on them to think about it and, and hopefully, you know, come to that conclusion like, oh, geez, i got to wait longer. I wonder, though, if they've heard that so much over the last six months that it's no longer resonating, that we need new ways to reach them? Like, are they tuning out the message is my concern. I, I wonder. I mean, I think they know it. And I think when they see something clear like um, these numbers rise, you know, I think that's the, the point. If they were going out and doing things and then it seemed like there were no major consequences coming from it, then I think it would become much more a pattern of widespread behavior. Right. But when those consequences do come and they're clearly, you know, point, you can point to them and say, look, this is, this is what happened. And, and you could even, you know, if you, if you wanted to be a little tougher, say, and, and this will probably lead to, you know, one or two people dying. Um, you know, I, th- I think that brings it home to them. So I, I have a little more faith um, that uh, I think it's in the back of their mind. I don't think it's a stubborn I don't think it's an orneriness. I think they just have this big magnet pulling them together. And, and every now and they then they start it. to feel like, okay, I can give in to that. Um, but, but again, I think if there's a clear signal like, no, not yet, um, then, then I think they will react in the right way. So the problem is that clear signal, right, as you mentioned there. So yeah. are they paying yeah. attention to that daily press conference? When I see a number like 85, I, I freak out, right, where I think, oh, my goodness, like we have to really be careful here. But I'm older. I'm 48. So that's natural. Yeah. Of course I would. So how do we get through the, with the numbers? Do we need to target advertising? Like how do we reach that particular cohort? I mean, there are there are some. I've seen a lot of effective sort of drinking and driving ads of this sort as well, or or distracted driving ads where occasionally um, the one I remember is kids will sort of 
shamefully talked about, yeah, I sometimes look at my phone while I drive. And, uh, and yes. then they're confronted with, with somebody who had been injured in an accident, um, a young person who can't do whatever. And, and after they talk to that person for a while, they're like, oh, my goodness, I'll never do this again. Um, so ads, ads can be powerful to kind of um, translate that, that um, risk. And uh, if there were an ad or two, for example, that really kind of traced you know, somebody went to a party, and and now their grandparent or something like that is, is in the you know the ICU mm. and, and potentially life threatening. I think those sorts of ads can make the risk real. Um, we want to be careful not to fear monger too much um, and all that kind of stuff. But but I think that would be a potential approach to kind of you know, humanize the risk, really, right. and, and make them think about it in that way. Well, you've just given some great ideas out there, Steve. So that is, yeah. talk to maybe people who are stuck in isolation now because they went to a party with people that they don't know, and yeah. now look at them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think those are those are the stories we kind of need out there. Um, but, but I think we also need this, you know, uh, less of a how do we get through to them, and, and why aren't they seeing things the way we are, and a little bit more of reimagining ourselves when we were 15 and what was important to us and, and kind of saying, listen, we get where you're at. We just need you to, we need you on our team uh, for, for, you know, a little bit longer here. Uh, you know what, that that's is the best approach. Excellent advice, Steve. We can't thank you enough for joining us this morning. Cool. Have a great one. You too. That is Steve Jordan, who's a psychology professor at the University of Toronto Scarborough, who just explained that so well to me, and it makes perfect sense. We've been kind of going, how do we get the message through to young people? And Steve is saying, think about what it was like for you at that age. You are expanding your social networks. It is kind of a necessary part of the growth of people at that age, and we're asking them to pause it, but we just need to help them understand a little bit. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about getting kids back to school. It's it's a bit of a process right now, and it's been changing, it seems like, every day. But let's talk about where we are at. So joining us now is Rob Fleming, BC Education Minister. Thank you for being here this morning. Thanks for having me, Simi. Okay, so we've got increasing cases, right? 85 yesterday, concerns about gatherings, particularly among younger people, how can we at this point also be talking about sending kids and teachers back to school together? Well, I think you very clearly heard Dr. Bonnie Henry talk about what the problematic situations are. These are private parties, very confined spaces involving alcohol uh, and uh, just a, a, a spreader event as opposed to a controlled site uh, that emphasizes hand hygiene, keeps uh, kids and staff uh, in uh, a design school to limit interactions with one another that has a whole hierarchy and layers of control. Just that that's that's the difference. Uh, the schooling system, like other workplaces in BC, uh, is going to be governed by BC Center for Disease Control guidelines that, that are designed to prevent uh, contact and the spread of COVID and to restore learning. And I think the discussion that's really important to be having in British Columbia, and I know this means a lot to parents and kids out there, is is how much we've lost uh, to this pandemic uh, in terms of uh, education that uh, the kids receive. There is a toll going on out there for a lot of young kids who are, are isolated, who have not been in a formal learning setting for six months by the time we get back to school. Mm-hmm. Um, BC has looked at other jurisdictions uh, in European countries and elsewhere that have return to school safely. It has tremendous benefits for everyone's mental health and well-being. And also, it's really important. We talked on your program last year about some of the things that the grad class of 2020 had to go go without. 
we've got to we've got to make sure that we're supporting the grad class of 2021 and the new kids coming into kindergarten and school for the first time to have a good experience to to finish their learning careers strongly to begin their learning career strongly that, that's really important right. for British Columbia. You talked about like the protocols, you know, putting everything in place and do you think that's where people are concerned because they don't know yet all of those rules. Like what are those things going to look like? People do want to feel safe. Yeah, well, if they want to get uh, some more detail, they should look at the BC Center for Disease Control K to 12 guidelines. We updated those, we published those July 29th. Uh, they're uh, an iteration and refinement on the guidelines that we used to uh, restart school uh, on a part-time basis back in June. Uh, we are blessed in the province of British Columbia to have one of the most sophisticated, strong, globally recognized uh, provincial health offices and Center for Disease Control to, to help us through with these things. Um, our government uh, announced on the 29th that we would be uh, supplying and, and funding a, a number of resources that are important to, uh, to, to support COVID uh, prevention, uh, additional hand washing stations, cleaning supplies, personal protective equipment. All of those things are part of the plan. It's a robust plan. Uh, the school. I know what parents are really looking for is what it's going to look like in their local school. Yeah. And we've got we've got teams on the ground right now of administrators. They're back at work. They've come back from their summer early. They're working with their district uh, occupational health and safety committees to work within those guidelines to lay out the school differently. It's going to be a lot different. There's going to be a lot of rules. It's one of the reasons why we uh, decided to make uh, September 8th to 11th an orientation week, both for staff and students about how they uh, how they use their school when they come, what the staggered bell schedules look like, why it's important to maintain physical distancing wherever possible, and uh, and have a safe learning environment. Everybody needs to familiarize themselves with right. that. You mentioned equipment there and money being made available. Is that going to be a flexible amount of money in case there is more that's needed, more masks needed, more you know plexiglass shields needed, whatever it takes to make those rooms safe? Yeah, I mean the, the resourcing is there. Uh, we we put we put out a forty five million dollar, forty six million dollar package to to cover those expenses. Some of it is for hiring more custodians. There's twenty three million dollars to hire uh, additional custodial staff so that the uh, regular cleaning and deep cleaning can happen in the schools. Um, it, uh, we have uh, districts not quite reporting yet, but there were a number of them that had significant savings. Last year, government uh, did not claw that back, as we saw in other jurisdictions. That's money available <clears throat> for them to use as they see fit. And, um, you know, look, uh, Carol James is our finance minister. She was a seven-year veteran president of the BC School Trustees Association. We have a supportive voice at every level. You've heard the Premier talk passionately as a parent of two boys about the value of education. This is this is something that uh, our government is making our number one priority for the well-being of our communities and families. What do you say to people who are worried about expanding their bubbles by sending their kids to school? This obviously is a concern. Grandparents who are caregivers, people who really minded their bubbles carefully, and now they're being asked to dramatically expand them. I would say um, to familiarize themselves with the safe school protocols that are going to be in place. Um, Kids uh, can uh, have safe social groups. Uh, You've heard... uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry talked about how we can adapt and stay safe uh, at various stages. I think there's lots of people who maybe think that we're still back in lockdown and 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 we're not. We've we've safely reopened businesses. We have commercial activity happening. People have returned to work. That's all good. Um, schools are an important part of uh, of community life and and extremely valuable for young people in terms of 
um, the learning that they that they get and that they get best within class instructions. So um, it's the, the point is to do it safely. We've looked at uh, countries like Denmark uh, that have done it safely. I've noticed that schools in Scotland returns uh, yesterday. They have uh, plans in place that are very very similar to us. Uh, I do I do worry a little bit uh, seeing social media feeds on Facebook and, and elsewhere that people are posting things about Georgia and Florida and Mississippi. Let's stop comparing ourselves. One of the best, safest COVID uh, uh, jurisdictions in the world of, of where to live during this mm-hmm. pandemic to the worst performing country in the world. They are the worst performing country in the world. It's a failure of political leadership. It's a deficiency of a non-existent public health system down there. There's, there's just really no comparing ourselves to our neighbors, and I say that respectfully. Are there more changes coming? Like, it's been flexible so far. You've been responding. Mm-hmm. But will you stay flexible if there are still concerns? Yes, we will. And, and I think the, the thing that I'm proud of in, in British Columbia is that we have a steering committee composed of all of the K-12 education stakeholders, the, the professionals uh, that work in our schools, the support staff unions, uh, parent organizations, First Nations uh, rights holders in the education system, superintendents, principals, vice principals, and school trustees are, are, are partners in delivering education services. What we're seeing, which is really encouraging out there, is a lot of work being done in every corner of the province really innovative ideas about uh, implementing the guidelines, a safe return to learning in districts right around BC. And, uh, and that's, that's good. You're starting to see more communication from districts, which uh, again is, is the most important thing for local families. They relate to their local school. And I understand that. And they're working hard right now on what the local plans are looking like. All right. We will wait to hear more. Thank you for your time this morning. Thanks so much, Simi. It's Rob Fleming, BC's Education Minister, uh, offering trying to offer some reassurance to people out there who remain very concerned about the back-to-school plan. And I think he's right when he says that what people worry about is their local school. What is my school going to look like? What is my child's school going to look like? And the point that I heard there is... You don't fully know yet that they're working on that, that you don't know what it's going to look like. They're putting protocols into place. It's going to be like the first time you went to a restaurant after the lockdown ended. It's not going to look the same. And that is the concern. That's the disconnect, that people still don't have enough information to feel entirely comfortable. But is that information coming? Are you patient enough to wait another couple of weeks? Because there's a lot of concern about about that. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. You can also call our buzz line, 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. Five years out of the playoffs. Now they're back. They win a game against the defending Stanley Cup champions. Normally, at any other time in a normal life, you would think that people would be packed into bars and getting together to watch the Vancouver Canucks play. Well, people are getting together in much smaller groups. They're still watching the Canucks. But the whole situation of how they're doing that is very different, particularly when you are looking at bars and restaurants and how they are still trying to attract those customers, but also trying to keep people safe. So we thought we'd take a look at what bars and restaurants are doing to make things different. Joining us now is Kelly Jordan-Hamilton, Sales and Marketing Manager at Red Card Sports Bar and Eatery in downtown Vancouver. Kelly, thanks for being here. Hi, thank you. So tell me, what have you guys had to do? You want people to come in and watch the game, but obviously you can't let people pack in there. Yeah, no, exactly. It's definitely uh, been a bit more challenging, but it's made us think outside the box. Um, so uh, one thing, obviously, we've had to do is we we used to be able to have just over 100 people in that bar, which is great for the atmosphere on sports, on sports games. But um, 
during these times, we definitely have to do that reduced capacity, which means we're under 50 people, so the bar is not even half full. Um, we've had to keep people to max of six per table and six feet apart. So there's there's no big crowds, you know, when people are cheering, they're, they have to stay in their own little bubble and the staff definitely have to be more aware of that, that you can't mm-hmm. allow people, you can't even allow people to stand up and walk to the bar. Everyone has to stay in their bubble. They're only allowed to leave if they have to go smoke or they're only allowed to go to the bathroom. Other than that, they have to stay seated. How are people um, at, how are people at like keeping to those rules, Kelly? Are they good about it? Well, so far, so good. Fingers crossed. <laughs> um, the staff has been very vigilant. But yeah, yesterday, you know, uh, we had some diehard fans in. They were get, they got they got very excited. So we had to have our seat pretty much like, hey, guys, thank you. We appreciate it. Just remember to, to stay in your seat and stay in your bubble. <laughs> right. So they've been pretty well uh, receptive to the new rules, which has been a great help for us. Good. Good. I'm really glad to hear that. Are, are you yeah. getting lots of interest in people coming in to watch the game? Yeah, so again, that was something we uh, were thinking of um, prior to this, uh, prior to opening again. And the one good thing we're seeing is people are, we're we're being safe. So I think when people are coming in, they they kind of can relax a bit. And we have our regulars, we have our diehard fans that still come in. But also a lot of other um, restaurants and bars may not be able to hold the same amount of people. So we're seeing some new some some new customers come in as well, which is great. Interesting. So do you think maybe the crowds are spread out a bit more as well as people look for the the right spot, the socially distant spot to watch the game? Yeah, I definitely do. And the fact then that you can actually go to the stadium to watch the games means people are still looking for somewhere to find that atmosphere and find that that place to connect about the game. So we're finding a few more people are coming in as well that would normally just be diehard fans that are going straight to the game every time. Oh, that's a good point. So what's your game plan yeah. then for the next couple of games, Kelly? Is it just staying the course? Yeah, it's just staying the course. You know, we have our QR codes, which are like there so they don't touch. You just put your phone over it, that, which is also they're economically friendly. So there's just many other things we're doing to make sure that uh, we're keeping our customers and our staff safe. So we, they can still enjoy the game, but, you know, no one has to worry. <laughs> That's nice. So do you have a message out there for people who might be interested in coming to a bar to watch the games? Um, yeah, just just come down, be respectful of the procedures in place. We want to make sure we're giving you the same service. Uh, we want to make sure we're giving you as much of the same atmosphere as possible. So be respectful and really enjoy and be safe. All right, Kelly, thanks so much for your time. No, thank you so much. That is Kelly Jordan-Hamilton, Sales and Marketing Manager at Red Card Sports Bar and Eatery in downtown Vancouver, where, yes, they are welcoming Canucks fans to come and watch these oh-so-important playoff games, right, for fans. Boy, it's been a long time, five years, since you've been able to say that and especially watch them win. But what was great about what we heard from Kelly there is that people are being good. People are following the rules. They're not being difficult about it. They may need the occasional reminder about not table hopping, six to a table, you know, kind of following along. 
But when they do remind people, people go, yeah, sure, no problem. And that is wonderful to hear, right? Because we can do this. There are rules. We're keeping everybody safe. We're keeping each other safe. So it's nice to know that people are following along with that. So we'll see if this means that people are going to be a little more encouraged to perhaps go out and enjoy themselves. Also, spreading it out, as Kelly pointed out. Maybe they're getting some overflow that pe- normally people would have gone to another place, but that's you know keeping to the rules as well. So they're hopefully spreading some of that wealth around when it comes to spending some money while you watch the game. Found a way in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, there's been so much going on the last couple of months that one of the stories that we also traditionally talk about at this time of year has not gotten as much attention as it probably should. And that has to do with the Fraser River Sockeye Salmon Run. Well, the numbers are coming in, and right now it looks like it could potentially be the worst that has been recorded in our history this year. So we wanted to talk more about that. Joining us now is Fiona Martins, Chief of the Fisheries Management Programs with the Pacific Salmon Commission. Fiona, thanks for being here. Thanks, Annie. What is the problem? What kind of numbers are we talking about here? Yeah, um, right now, uh, what we've adopted for the run size is to uh, a run size of 283,000 sockeye. And as you mentioned, uh, this is proving to be one of the lowest uh, returns that we ever have had, you know, in recorded history. Um, but, you know, having said that, in the last five years, we've had uh, three other record low return years. So uh, 2016 being one of them. So we only had a return of 894,000 that year. And these fish that are returning this year are the offspring of those fish that were turned in 2016. So we were certainly anticipating um, a low run size, but nothing as low as, as what we're seeing right now. So. In a normal cycle, I don't even know what is a normal cycle anymore, I guess. It's been so long <laughs> since we've had that. But what, yeah. what, what, were we, what was the average in, before we started getting these really low numbers? Um, well, this cycle line, so like on like the 2020 cycle line, has always been a, a, a lower return. Uh, year, but uh, you know the average is, you know, in a, like a couple of million, we'd be anticipating normally on this kind of uh, return year. But we're still seeing, you know, fairly decent returns on like the 2018 cycle line. So that's the year when we see um, a lot of the late shoot fish uh, returning. So. Right. Is any of this Fiona cyclical in terms of like, is there a five-year cycle? Like, can we expect things to improve, or do you think this is just the new normal? Yeah, no, that's a, a good question. Um, so like I said, you know, record low returns for, for three out of the five years so far. Um, and it's hard to say that, uh, it, yeah, it, it's looking like this is the new normal. Um, even on a year, like I mentioned, the 2018 cycle line, um, we certainly have larger numbers. But uh, even in that year, we had, you know, close to 11 million sockeye and, and pretty decent catch. But um, even returns on that dominant cycle line are, are declining, and um, yeah, and it will likely continue to decline. That that seems to be what our information is showing now. Okay, so if this is the way it's going to be, then do we have to do a rethink of how we approach our fisheries? Um, well, I think people are already doing that. Um, where you know there aren't any fisheries happening for Fraser sockeye this year, and there there weren't any last year or in in 2016. So I think conservation is definitely um, on, on people's minds as we manage these fisheries every year. 
So if we rethink that, I mean, this it seems like such a lifeblood of BC. Are there things that we can be doing to mitigate this? And is this a problem they're seeing elsewhere? Like, what about up in Alaska? No, I mean, and that's where it's, you know, it's a bit confounding because Alaska is seeing, uh, you know, record returns over the last couple of years and the, the tens of millions, like 40, on the order of 40 to 50 million. So, um, you wow. know, it could be something that's happening in the the marine environment. So, um you know, we've certainly heard stories about this um, marine heat wave, the blob, as they were calling it. And, and these are fish that were in that marine environment um, uh, when those warm ocean conditions were occurring. Um, and the other thing that was happening in the, the ocean is just, you know, there's changing food sources. So instead of uh, fish having these high lipid, like high fat uh, food sources, they, they aren't, um, those aren't available right. to them right now. They're yeah, is lower, there, lower fat content. Is there something that they're doing in Alaska that we should be doing? <laughs> um, well, I think it has in part to do with like where these fish, uh, where these Fraser sockeye fish go go in the marine environment. You know, they're they're in a different um, area than where the fish in Alaska are going. So I think that's part of the thing that we're trying to better understand. So, what is the work then, Fiona, that we need to do over the next couple of years? Um, well, I, there's a lot of research ongoing, and um, I think people are, are doing the, their best right now. And, and like I mentioned, you know, we're, we're not having any fisheries, and we're continuing to, to study and, and try to better understand what's happening in the marine environment. And some of that includes, like, there's, for instance, the um, International Year of the Salmon, and that's a program that's been operating now for the last couple of years, and they've had um, uh, some high... T- seed cruises, mm-hmm. uh, both in 2019 and, and this year, and they're anticipating doing another one in 2021 to better understand what's happening in, in the marine environment. All right. Well, Fiona, thank you very much for your time on this. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks, Amy. Fiona Martins, Chief of Fisheries Management Programs with the Pacific Salmon Commission, talking about the Fraser River Sockeye Salmon Run, expected to be the worst they have ever recorded this year. They said they were expecting bad numbers because this is the offspring of the very bad 2016 run, uh, but still still surprised by how low the numbers were this year. And then you hear about Alaska, as Fiona pointed out, where they're having great runs in the tens of millions of fish still. So there's something very wrong that they still need to do a lot of research in how to help the sockeye runs here on the Fraser River. This is Mornings with Simi. So you may have heard in the news that Simon Fraser University is changing the name of all of their athletics teams after hearing too often that that word clan was being associated with racial discrimination because of the KKK. So let's talk more about the process now that they are going to undergo to find new names. SFU President Andrew Petter joins us now. Thank you for being here. Uh, Great to be here, Simi. So what is this process going to be like? Well, the process will be another consultation process, as the process was that led to this decision. It will not be under my watch because my term is coming to an end, so it will be under the watch of our new president, uh, Joy Johnson. It will be run by the uh, Athletics and Recreation um, uh, Unit as as they have this process. And it will reach out uh, not just to student-athletes, but to the whole university community and alumni and and seek input. And then uh, the president will have to make a decision based upon the advice received. When did it become apparent to you and other members like Apai that this name just wasn't tenable anymore? 
Well, the issue has bubbled over a number of years, but it really became clear to me when there was a poll of student-athletes last year that showed over 70% of our student-athletes had now come around to favoring a name change. And as a result of that, we decided we had to take it seriously and and really do a, a stakeholder engagement process. That started in January. It showed that, in fact, uh, 90% of student-athletes are now of that view. But uh, as well, the uh, university community, I think, understands that we are the only Canadian team in the NCAA. Our students compete uh, regularly in the United States. And unfortunately, the word clan, not in the way it's spelt, but in the way it sounds, has a very different meaning south of the border. And it's been causing real problems uh, for our student-athletes. We want them to compete with pride, and uh, it was pretty clear that wasn't going to be possible going forward. See, that's such a good point that I don't think a lot of people realized, is that sure, here people may have understood that difference, but not when you take those games on the road. Yeah, and people sitting in the stands don't spell out the names that they're, <laughs> that they're shouting out in support or against the, yeah. the team. And we have you know athletes who went to the Final Four already in the NCAA were competing in Georgia and the South, and it just became a situation which was causing problems, and we want our athletes to compete with pride. Having said that, we do uh, very much honor the, the tradition of the clan. We will retire the name with respect. It's part of a Scottish tradition that continues at SFU through our Scottish Studies Department and our pipe band. So uh, we certainly hold, hold the uh, clan and its history with pride, but uh, we also have to protect our student-athletes uh, from any harassment that they might otherwise receive. Right. So what has the reaction been like in the last 24 hours or so since the announcement was made? Uh, the reaction has been, by and large, very positive from within the university community, from our alumni, including our athletic alumni. Even if, if they feel sad about the decision, I think they understand why it was uh, necessary. Of course, there are some people who, understandably, uh, uh, are not uh, keen on the change. That's, uh, that's in the nature of this. But for me, the, the real decision-making uh, 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 key was the the well-being of our student-athletes. And when they said that they were feeling beleaguered or worse, uh, were feeling harassed and and in danger uh, as a result of this name, I I think that was the trigger point for the decision that I ultimately had to make. All right. Well, listen, thank you very much for explaining it to us this morning. Thank you, Simi. Good to be here. That's Andrew Petter, SFU president, who, yes, is coming to the end of his term to be replaced by Joy Johnson. But this decision made and announced yesterday that they will be changing the name of their athletics teams. And you know what? That makes sense because I think we think of it as a local thing. But imagine, yeah, they play in the NCAA. Imagine going to schools down the south and then the other people on the other teams hear that the team is called the Klan well, obviously a very different connotation there, right? So they're going to start a process by which to help the athletes and the students pick a a new name that they can all be a part of.